This is a Podfire production. G'day guys, Brett here. Due to COVID, we had a few issues with the sound quality of today's podcast. I was in a hotel room in Canberra, whilst Chris, my guest, was in Melbourne. He was at home and we had a few issues with his microphone. However, I decided that we'd play it anyway. Normally I'd want to re-record, but due to the mighty boomers getting up and winning the bronze medal at the Olympics, I thought, why not? Let's just play it how it is. Hope you enjoy. This podcast may include explicit themes or swearing and may not be suitable for children. The world is full of amazing people, and once a week, I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum, and this is Awesome Humans. Morning all, this is Brett McCallum. I'm your host of the Awesome Humans podcast, where we bring together some of the most amazing people on this awesome planet of ours to tell us their stories, have a few laughs, sometimes tears, but most of all, it's all about them and who they really are. Welcome to Awesome Humans. Today's Awesome Human is one of only 25 Aussies ever to play on the big stage in the NBA. Drafted by the Portland Trailblazers in the NBA in 1997, he went on to be traded to the Dallas Mavericks before he even played a game for them and made his debut in the 97-98 season. He went on to play for my Chicago Bulls before roaming around the world playing his craft. He's also a double Olympian, having represented the Australian Boomers in the Sydney 2000 and 2008 Beijing Olympics. This bloke is one of the best storytellers I know, releasing some very amazing stories on social media. But he's now been transferred into his new book, Tall Tales. He's the father to three children, a public speaker, writer and consultant. He's officially our largest awesome human to date <laughs> at 213 centimetres. Seven foot tall. A big welcome to Chris Anthony, today's awesome human. How are you, buddy? I'm well, Brett. How are you? Um, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to the chat. No worries, mate. Mate, the way I always start my podcast is I um I go back to where it all began. And that's uh that's what's your first ever memory? How far back can you go? Well, um, you know what I I, I don't have that many really, really young childhood memories, but you know, I, I remember my old house that I moved out of in Footscray when I was, you know, four and a half years old. And I, I remember a little bit about kindergarten, but the one that I that I always remember, and I, I grew up playing tennis, and the house we moved into had, you know, the little the the lines in the concrete where the gaps sort of oh, yeah. stand, and there were six of them in our double carport, and four of them made the tennis court that I used to hit a bus, I hit a, a tennis ball on every single day. I, I'd literally play entire tennis tournaments, sort of McEnroe, Edberg, McEnroe, Edberg, Mac, and you'd win a point, then you'd win a game, then you'd win a match. And I'd have draws of 124 people. So it took weeks. <laughs> and, you know, I just loved playing tennis. And I suppose got infatuated with trying to understand how could how good I could become at a particular thing. And, you know, what I probably learned later on in life, looking back at that was my hand-eye coordination was improving every time because, you know, really quick hands against the wall and that and my footwork kind of helped me become a basketball player much later on in life. But I've just always loved having a ball in my hands, having a racket in my hands and being active. Why tennis? Was that a family thing or just something you picked up? A little bit. Dad played. Uh, Mum played a little bit. Um, We used to go around in the tennis club and like a lot of stories isn't it you watch your parents do something and yeah. then you jump on and, and join in and um you know it was interesting a lot of people have asked me what's the most memorable tennis win that i've ever had and you know i beat mark Philippoussis, but that's not it it was it was the first time i ever beat dad yeah and of course because he was always just better than me um and of course to beat your dad when he's trying uh was the one for me and I, he played a grade and he, he and he did well but I must have been probably 14 or 15 when I first won a set off him and I was on court two at the Keel or Tennis Club. <laughs> and I always remember doing it, always remembering being shitty. Um, and he wanted to play me a lot less after, <laughs> after that. But um, no, we used to hit all the time. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Um, Gary Vaynerchuk always says that never give your kids any um, any sort of movement because they will beat you one day. And uh, I do that with my kids now. We play basketball at the front of the house. I reject them. I dunk over their heads on a seven-foot ring. Just all the little things because I still can. <laughs> but at the same time, I know there's that day coming. It's getting closer where 
they're just going to outplay me. And it's like, wow, it's uh, looking forward to it, though. It's one of those yeah, things. So I'm, I'm the same way. And you, you've got to <laughs> let them win points or you have to let them score every now and again to keep them interested, but they can't win. They can't win. No, you, no. You, you've got to remind them every now and again that you've still got a level to get to. 100%. 100%. So where were you born? Uh, born in Melbourne. Uh, born and raised here at the old Francis Perry. Uh, used to be in the city. Uh, like I said, grew up in Footscray and moved across to Keelor. So, so Footscray was your Keelor first school? The time. Yeah, so, I'm sorry? Sorry, so Footscray was where you first went to school? Or uh, No, I was at kindergarten there, uh, just around the corner from the Western Oval, which is one of the absolute number one reasons. And there's another memory. I, I We always used to walk to the game. We stood in the Ford pocket of the Western Oval and watched the Bulldogs every Saturday afternoon. Um, and so I've been a lifelong Western Bulldog supporter. Uh, but no, my childhood, I went to St. Augustine's in, uh, in Keelor at primary school. I, I started in prep and all my, you know, primary school in Keelor, secondary school at North Keelor, a Catholic regional college, and then moved up to Sydenham, which was their 11 and 12 campus, um, you know, to finish off. But uh, So when you were in school, when you were in primary school, those sort of things, were you a good kid, bad kid, were you a jock, were you a nerd? No, but probably a bit of a nerd, I reckon. And I always stood out. And one of the things I do enjoy getting back and speaking to schools about, and it's the one thing basketball was great for for me in the first time, you know, in the first instance, was it was the one place I truly felt normal. Yeah. Because I was always taller than everyone else. And I got picked on, I got beat up, I got tripped, all those sort of things. And then, of course, people, when you step away from your class, expect you to be smarter because you're taller and look older. So I didn't like school. Um, you know, I was one of the kids who got bullied a lot and picked on a lot to the extent where I, you know, in high school I'd take days off because I couldn't be bothered dealing with it, and I'd go to the tennis court and play. Um, but you know, as I got older, I've, I've learned to to really embrace being different. It's who I am. I'm not changing. Hundred percent, mate. And I, and I don't want to change to be someone I'm not. And it's hard. It's a hard lesson to tell a kid because school sucks if if you're that kid. But um, when you finally find the people who like you for you, they're, they're my lifelong friends. I mean, oh, without doubt, my you know, I've got a group of tennis friends that are my, they're still my closest friends in the world. And whether I see them every week or see them every year or two, it doesn't matter. We just pick up where we left off. And um, no, so school for me wasn't that. I, I needed to get through it. I, I you know I was counting down the hours each day until I could go and play tennis. Um, so it was all tennis. It's interesting, isn't it? You ended up being a professional basketball player, but it was all tennis, tennis, tennis. And they're two completely different sports, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But, you know, I mentioned yeah, depth perception. I had pretty good touch. I moved my feet well. And you know, I was always tall. And that was reasonably rare playing tennis. And I never wanted to be treated differently. I, I wanted to be agile. I wanted to move quickly. I, you know, you needed to have, like I said, good quick reflexes. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the day I started playing basketball, I was doing my VCE and my younger brother had started playing not long before and he played for a men's C-grade team with a couple of my uncles called Albatross at Keelor Basketball Stadium. And mm -hmm. he'd asked me to play. I told him no a number of times. And eventually, mum made me do it uh, because they didn't have enough players without, you know, they'd have to forfeit the game. So I went up and, and somewhere on that drive from Keelor Village to Keelor Stadium, tell people I started I made the decision to try yeah, yeah there are those days when you can't be bothered doing something so I call it kicking rocks you sort of drag your feet into the stadium yep. you half ass it and you get out because you never wanted to be there in the first place um maybe I wanted to try to prove that I was better than him maybe I, I'd love to give you a better reason but I tried and how old were you me, then how old were you 17 okay so trying for me meant running and mm -hmm. I was bigger than all the men's C-grade players, of course. So I could catch the ball at the front of the rim and I could sort of stand there, put my hands up and make them shoot over me. And um, I had 52 points in this C-grade game. And, <laughs> you know, anyone who's been to a, a domestic sporting event knows that primarily there are one or two people watching. If it's an adults game, you know, yeah. a senior game, if there's kids, there might be a parent. But I reckon out of the 10 people across the three courts there, one of them happened to be a, a junior basketball coach for the Melbourne Tigers Basketball Club and saw me play. Um, of course, he noticed my height, but then saw that I could move. And months later, they got onto me because they couldn't find me. They, they were looking for my domestic club, which I didn't have. Yeah. And invited me down to come and train with the, the representative junior team as a top age under 18. 
Um, I joined them halfway through and happened to, to walk into one of the best junior basketball clubs in the country that had, you know, wins more games than it loses, had won championship after championship. So right from the minute I started playing basketball, I was learning from the best and I didn't have any bad habits. So that in itself set me up to be reasonably successful. So that was the Gaze family, was that? No, it was. It ended up being Des Middleton who who got on to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it might have actually been one of the Tomlinsons who saw me. Oh, really? And but Des Middleton was was incredible. I actually two clubs heard about me. Actually, went down to the Nunawading Basketball Club, and they were a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming. For, I'd never trained. I'd never had a basketball training. Jump in, young fella. Let's see what you can do. I walked out of the stadium before I walked onto the court. I had no idea, and it was so foreign, but. But Des, when I got to the Tigers, yeah, took me aside, you know, had a chat. He had a look at me, shoot a couple of shots on a backcourt, explained to the team that I was brand new. um, I'd never played before and make sure they looked after me. And the difference in the approach between the two programs, if the Tigers were like Nunawading, I would never have walked back into a basketball stadium. So I often credit Des Middleton for... You, you still see young coaches today or young junior coaches today. They're rah, rah, rah. They're hard. They want players running. They don't take the time to develop. They're yeah. more worried about winning on a Friday night. But Des, winning was a byproduct. The, the skill development, the emotional development was what he was interested in. Everyone played near on equal minutes, even as one of the best teams in the country. And we all got better together. Um, that was what drew me to basketball. That's what kept me there because I felt welcome. I didn't feel like I was just another piece. So, yeah, Des Middleton was incredible. So when you went to that first ever game and you scored 52 points, what did your brother say? I can't remember. (laughs) But I I remember thinking, and to be honest, I think he might have been a little bit resentful. Yeah, of course. I I remember thinking that the game came pretty easily to me um, insofar as even as I got into it. And I was a bad, but keep in mind, it's a men's C-grade team. Yeah, yeah. When when I started, if you ask anyone at the Tigers or the opposition, um, I was terrible. I was lanky. I didn't know the game. I I got lost all the time, but I could run and I could catch. But I didn't know how to play. Mm. Um, But, yeah, yeah, I found that it came naturally. And my brother, you know, he ended up playing a lot of Siebel years. He played a year in the NBL, so it was very successful in his own right. But... um, I guess, you know, again, sometimes it comes naturally and it came naturally to me. And I was at that age where I was able to take, I started university. I deferred my studies when I realized I didn't want to do maths and computer science, although I'd started it. So I quit Mm -hmm. or I deferred it and I ended up never going back. And the only deal I had with dad was that I could continue to play as long as I worked my ass off. uh, And as long as I continued to improve and I kept improving, I kept working my ass off and, in that second year, a guy named Del Westover, who would become my under-20s coach, he was the assistant coach of the Melbourne Tigers NBL club and would end up being the head coach when I came back later on in my career. We'd be on the backcourts of the, of the old Albert Park Basketball Stadium for, honestly, hours every day, shooting, running, getting better, working on my handles, which we never really got right. Um, <laughs> but I just, I never missed a day. And... You know, even back then, I guess I was willing to do a lot of things for a lot longer than a lot of people were willing to do. And is that because of the way you're parented? Do you think? Do you think it goes back to that? Is that you learned that from your mum and dad? And, and yeah, how, but mum and dad are always, you know, very much toughen up, get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's always a reason not to do something, but you can all, you should always be able to find a reason to do something. And I just became fascinated with improving. Um, mm-hmm. I was a little bit the same. And on the other way, if I don't like something, I tend to not. Um, but I enjoyed basketball and I enjoyed, I enjoy sport and I'm competitive. And so I didn't like not being as good as the other players and I wanted to catch up. I knew I had a long way to go. Um, but yeah, mum and dad were always tough, but in a good way. Um, yep. And I'm one of four boys. I was the oldest. So I always, you always feel like as the oldest, you get punished a little bit more and then you got to look after the others. And when I look at my younger brother, I'm geez, mate, you had it easy. <laughs> we, we took all of the lessons for you. We, <laughs> um, but no, I've, I've never really gone that deep into it. And sometimes there doesn't need to be a reason. Sometimes things of course. just happen. 
Um, for me, basketball just happened and always, I, I never, because I didn't grow up with it, I, I always considered myself fortunate and I could have stopped at any time and, and not missed it um, because I didn't grow up with it. Yeah. Um, but I continued to love it and continued to get better. And the longer I was in it, the more I got to love the people. And that became what I would miss if I walked away from it. So do you miss the tennis? So when you were 15, yeah, obviously you were going well. Do you then you move to basketball? Did you miss the tennis? I still love having a hit when I can. Yeah. Um, you know, I've gone away and played in a few tournaments with my old tennis friends over the years and, you know, played a couple of seasons of midweek, you know, men's A-graded and you had the local tennis club. But, um, you know, with what I do, my, my calendar is very inconsistent. So it's hard to commit to a weekly event. Um, so, yeah, I do. I miss having a hit. Um, when I get on a quarter, that's where, funnily enough, that's where I feel, that, that's where my childhood memories come back. Yeah. And that's where I feel comfortable. And that's what I love doing. I still love doing the same on a basketball court, but there are a lot more people I know through basketball that I can go and pick up a basketball and play with than there are tennis. You know, my, my old tennis mates are so much better than me that it's, a, it's not a good thing for them to hit with me. And because I played at a decent level, you know, I guess I'm a little bit better than the social tennis player. So I'm in this yeah. really weird space where it's hard to find someone of the right level to hit with who wants to do it. Um, it's actually, I found when I was on my, I was coaching, I was assistant coach of the under 19 national team a couple of years back and I was sitting there with the team doctor and we were talking, we we're sharing tennis notes. We thought it sounds like we're really similar. <laughs> and he's, he's six or seven years younger than me, but um, we thought let's do this when we get home and we did. And we were really close and pre-COVID, we probably had five or six hits and he moved down to Geelong. So we stopped doing it, but it was such an enjoyable thing to find someone of a similar level to have a hit and then to play a couple of sets where it was close and you had to try and you weren't yeah. sure who was going to win. And that was, it was a great time. That's the best bit about sport though, isn't it? Is if you can find that com competition still, even no matter how old you get. Um, you can find someone at a similar level that makes a big difference that you can actually still, still compete. So let's go back to school, mate. When So uh, your height's obviously been something that's been a bad thing and a good thing all your life. Like it's, it's got you where you need to go. But at the same time, you mentioned earlier about bullying and all that sort of stuff. So where, where does it come from? Is that your mum and your dad? Where, yeah, where does your height I think come it from? Comes, yeah, I think even a generation further, dad's dad's, you know, six one, six two, and you mm -hmm. know, he's just turned 95 odd. Um, that's so awesome, isn't it? That, 95. That's, that's, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, that, that's really tall for that generation. And then, yep. yeah, dad's six five, six six, and I'm seven foot. I've got a 6'11", a 6'10", and a 6'8", brother. Okay. So we're all tall. I, I, I was the biggest by, by just a fraction, but um, it comes, surely it comes from dad's side and it comes from his dad. And so a really good friend of mine I went to school with, he, um, he played in the NBL a bit before your time, but um, he was uh, 6'11". And uh, I remember when we were at school in like year seven, he was 6'6". And yep. uh, he sort of just took off from that sort of age of around 12. And uh, he suffered very similar to, you, to yourself. But uh, I do remember him as a kid that uh, he sort of over a period of about three years grew about 10 inches. It was, it was unbelievable yeah, seeing that. Th that I think the thing is, you know, kids and people want to fit in. Um, yep. They yep. don't often want to stand out. I'm a little bit the same. And, you know, I still get the, the 50 or 100 comments a day if I'm out about all the different height jokes and comments and, they brush off me, but I've got a 6'10 son now and I get really, really defensive of him. around him. And we work on strategies about it. But, you know, we, we sat there in a lift one day and um, there was a lady who got on and, um, you know, she looked straight up and down and, you know, in her head she was processing it. And, you know, geez, mate, you're really tall. And that's all she said to him. And he turned around and said, we're talking about body image, are we? Geez, you're really overweight. She said, oh, that's really offensive. And I, as a dad, I was just sitting back watching. Yeah. And he said, what's the difference? He said, I can't do anything about my height. You can do something about your weight. And she got really, really offended, stormed off. And he was really upset by it. I said, you're right. And we had a chat about perhaps a better way to do it. But, you know, height just seems to be the one thing that people have 
free reign over making any comment they want and not knowing that it affects tall people because again we just want to fit in and I don't mind it I can, I can have a crack I can let it go I can make a joke of it yeah. I've got a bunch of different things but I've been dealing with it for you know 30 35 years now yeah. um, young teenagers are learning to deal with it or they've only been dealing with it for for a few years and they don't have those sort of tools and you know, I still see kids and, you know, they walk around walls like I used to do. They won't walk through a crowd. They'll stay at home because they don't want to deal with it. And uh, yeah. it's sad. I was going to say, it must make you sad, especially when you look at your own kids and it's affecting them even more. It makes you want to do something more about it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And you continue to have conversations like this and you continue to try to educate and you allow, I, I allow my son to get shitty and to be upset and to have a crack back yep. um, within reason um and if it's appropriate because um i think people need to know that they're upsetting you or insulting you and sometimes without even thinking about it and you know there's been a lot of conversation around casual racism and casual sexism and all that kind of thing i, I think it's so, such a broad topic and it, it relates to so many other areas as well but we're getting better um yeah, clearly this is not the reason we got on to, to chat today, but it's something that's been... No, important. mate, but it's one of those topics that, that I think is really important to talk to people about. And it's really important that people understand that that is a thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's uh, like I'm, I'm not the skinniest human on the planet and someone makes a fat joke, I laugh it off. But at the same time, you sit there and go, yeah, actually, that, that if you took that the wrong way, then that right. would actually hurt. So one of the one of the things when I do go to schools and I do quite a bit of public speaking these days is that you know people always want the stories about the MBA or the, the different people you met, but when at school I, I always talk about being different and, and embracing being different and finding like-minded people who like you for you and it's so, it's it's such a great message and we always get into and then that will allow you to meet or experience these other incredible individuals but sometimes those kids just need to hear it from someone who's been through it like anything else like young indigenous kids like young gay kids yeah but sometimes they just need someone to say it's okay exactly man most kids need to actually talk about it there's a lot of kids that keep that stuff inside and that don't get the opportunity so uh, hats off to you if you are uh, for highlighting that and talking to kids about that may I, I look at it and i walk into a school i have a conversation with the kids and it's okay to be weird i'm weird i'm really happy about that i made it i made it done done well in life for being that weird bloke that actually has a crack at things and i think it's uh, i think it's awesome so Absolutely. we finished school did you go well in school in the end when you got i did school? okay yeah i was always really good at maths uh, just that naturally in my head yeah dad dad was an accountant he honestly he used to take me to mooney valley chops every saturday night. Oh, i love that <laughs> we'd work on percentages we'd work on probability all these kinds of things in real life and yeah you know so many i was one of them but so many kids learn better in real life yeah um and in something they're interested in and i was interested in the horses i was interested in maths and i used to love being up a little bit late on a saturday night and spending time with dad um so yeah i did well um you know i was probably just a, a just above average type student because i didn't do well in some subjects um yeah i still remember having the meeting with the career advisor saying you're going to be a professional athlete and i got into trouble mum and dad got called and, you know you've got to have a real goal and they <laughs> wanted me to say accountant or architect or yeah. something like that and architecture would have been the one i would have found my way into if I could have got through that level of study at university because I was fascinated by, you know, by building design. But um, no, I did pretty well. Um, I mean, I got into maths and computer science at La Trobe University. And like I said, I knew it, but I was sitting in a lecture hall one day listening and I understood everything. I was only two or three weeks in. I knew it. Um, America, you know, college culture here in Australia is not like America. You drive in, you drive out. You don't connect with fellow students straight away. Yeah. Um, but I remember sitting there clear as day thinking, if I'm doing this every day, the rest of my life, I'm going to be bored off my head. Yep. So I got up and walked out and you know, didn't have the heart to tell mum and dad for a while, but started going to Albert Park Basketball Stadium and catching up with Al Westover. And you know, it took me a while to tell mum and dad that I'd deferred my studies and I'd deferred them for so long, I never went back. So when you... Um, when you got Al Westover's teaching you how to shoot. He's teaching you how to play, where to be on the court, all that sort of stuff. 
So he's really taking you back to basics, isn't he? He's starting from scratch. I wasn't going back to basics. I've never been anywhere. But <laughs> Fair enough. Started at the beginning. <laughs> no, but, but, it, but it was great. And looking back, um, so and I've coached now for over 10 years and I've coached at a reasonably high level, both seniors and, you know, 18, 20-year-old yep. boys and girls. So many kids get to me with bad ingrained habits that they've been doing for six or eight years that I can't change and it's too late. And there's a there's a huge responsibility sometimes unknowingly on younger coaches or coaches of younger athletes to make sure they don't allow kids to develop bad habits. It's like smoking. It's like any other bad habit in life. Yep. They're hard to break. Um, but again, we get so caught up on winning week to week. We We allow our more talented kids to get away with bad technique for the now and we don't see the later. And for me, 100%. I, I was never about the now. I was always about where I can get to. But, you know, I learned to play sore. I learned to miss a bunch of shots and it'd be okay knowing that I had to get back to the practice court, get in thousands of reps, then get into the gym and get in thousands of reps. And it would pay off. And, you know, years later, Brian Gorgian, when I, when I met him, explained that nobody gets better on an even trajectory, they, they, they take a dip and they become worse than what they are now. And then they come out of it on this steep curve or this steep uh, improvement. And that's what I did. I got worse before I got better, but I was educated that that was okay. Um, so many people aren't, they'll change clubs because a kid's not playing enough. They'll change clubs or want a coaching change because their, their child hasn't improved every single month. But it's a process and you, you need to implement good habit. And that's exactly what I got from Des Middleton, from Al Westover, and then Brian Gordon. So those three coaches as the first three key influences in my basketball career were all about what I could become down the track and the results in the short term. But they took care of themselves because, you know, there's a saying that under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion, you revert to habit. My yeah. habit was actually getting pretty good. And so during that, you walk into a stadium, you're a seven-footer, everyone's expected you to be awesome. And during that, that sort of first, first days, you come in, you're a bit unco, you've obviously got good hands and, and you can run. But did you find it difficult to deal with the other players when you were young? Like, did the, they were no, expecting you no, to work? No, and, that, and that's, that's why I love that team. Because, I, no, I didn't. Um, they got it. Um, it was only sort of years later where I learned that there was there were a bunch of negative, thing, negative things being said, especially when I made my first... Uh, Victorian development squad mm -hmm. um, and what I learned later is the kids on the sideline used to actually play paper rock scissors to see who'd go against me because it was easy and they could almost make fun of me and, and not in a bad but they could score on me easily they could cross me up and yeah. confuse me and and I didn't I didn't even notice at the time I was so intent I, I know it's hard I know these guys have been playing longer than me and I know they're better than me but but everything I saw I knew that I could get to um, I just needed to be in it. Um, and so I stayed in it. Um, so there was a little bit, but, you know, in speaking of those same people years later, a few of them still go, God, I didn't see that in you. Yeah. Um, others, and others will say, we knew there was something there. So it just really became, you know, each person's individual perception of what I could become. But as far as I was concerned, I was brand new to the sport. No one even knew I existed for the first year or two. So then when you start getting to the point where, okay, I'm going to make my NBL debut, I'm going to, are you aspiring at that stage to get to the NBA? Is that, was that ever on uh, your cards? It wasn't, wasn't even on my radar. Um, I, I barely knew it existed. Um, I remember running out on the Rod Laver Arena for my very first NBL game. How old were you then? Uh, that was in 1994, so I would have been 19. Okay. Um, yeah, I played a minute a game, and most games I didn't play. But yeah, uh, my my memory from it is I always wanted to run out onto this court or walk out on this court with my racket bag yeah. and play in the Australian <laughs> Open. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was weird. Um, so no, I didn't have that aspiration, and I, and I didn't have it until yeah. We I, I mentioned we trained at the old Albert Park Stadium and. Being the Melbourne Tigers with Gaze, Copeland, Bradkey, Lindsay Gaze was the coach. We had the main court there. And in the little shoebox court, as you walk in, the Southeast Melbourne Magic train, and you had to walk past them, and you can't help but have a look in. And training was very different. They were a lot more, they were, they trained hard. They did a lot of skill development. The Tigers were very much 
gameplay strategy and structure, yeah. um, which was great for their veteran group. But it occurred to me at some stage that I needed what the magic had. And so when Brian Gorgian reached out to me after my first year at the Tigers, we we got to talking and he was the one. He says, mate, I, I see you representing this country. I see you getting to the NBA. And I remember thinking, this guy's he doesn't get me. That's not who I am. Yeah. But he also said, and here's how you're going to do it. And you're going to do it with Sam McKinnon and Jason Smith. Uh, Frankie Drimmick, back, you know, we've got this young core, we're going to put you together, we're going to work you harder than you've ever worked on and off the floor. Um, you know, we all played for Australia. Um, I got to play in the NBA, Sam went to a summer league. Um, it was exactly what I needed, but the thing was, it wasn't just let's get you to the NBA, it was here's how. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't, again, it didn't happen straight away. He reminded me, you're going to get worse before you get better. And I wasn't very good even then. And I did. It took me a good 18 months before I had a good game for the Magic. Um, but when I came out of it, I, I was in a really good place. And I, you know, my performance that people were able to come and see would have been noticeably different all of a sudden. And so then what, what happens there? Do you then get scouted? How, do, how did that actually take place? Yeah, well, we used to do these USA trips. Um, we'd play college teams. Uh, in As the magic or tournaments after our season, USA college teams, and we play some big ones, and they're always college people. And you know, I used to love those trips for the social as well as this this basketball experience, this American culture I'd never had. Yeah. Um, and the first trip I went on with a Victorian team, you know, I had some pretty decent games. But when I went with the Magic, and I was in a structure that I knew. Um, you know, it had some really big games against some really big colleges that I didn't actually know to be big colleges yeah. at the time until I walked in and I thought, there are 15,000 people here for a, an exhibition game at the University of Arizona <laughs> or Kansas University. It's a school. <laughs> right. And to the extent where the second or the second time I went with the Magic after the 96 championship, Andrew Parkinson actually pointed out, he goes, mate, look at all those NBA folders over there. They're all NBA scouts. And one of the scouts that I didn't know at the time was Jerry West had come down to the University of San Diego. He's a legend of the game. He's the logo. He's the logo. He's the NBA yeah. logo. And the very first possession of this game against the mid-level University of San Diego team with one of those big, you know, slow, big centers, they went to reverse the ball. I got a fingertip on it, went down and dunked it on the other end, got back, was in a stance playing defense. I hadn't even noticed, you know, that that was what I'd expected to do and Parky had started on the bench and he told me after the game he said mate you should have seen everyone scribbling in their notebooks when you had that first dunk oh really and after that I guess I started noticing the notepads and um, there was a different sense of pressure I didn't particularly enjoy it because I knew I was being evaluated all the time yeah but you know those notepads started arriving in Australia and they'd be at NBL games in the lead up to the draft and that was, it was a crazy time because I'd done this all pretty quickly and, you know, I was a little bit embarrassed by it all, to be honest, because, again, I knew how far behind I'd started and I, I wanted Sam McKinnon and Frank Drimmick and Jason Smith to have the same opportunity and that wasn't really happening and they'd been incredible teammates. They were still better players than me in my mind and there was a little bit of, again, it was embarrassment and a little bit of guilt that they were there to watch me, but I always hoped that they'd be watching my teammates at the same time. And so then you get the call, do you get a tap on the shoulder? How does that happen? Uh, some call, but you know, I got an agent early days. His name was Leon Rose. He, he'd never represented an NBA guy. He was a lawyer. He represented Rick Brunson, who played at the Adelaide 36ers for Mike Dunlap at the time. And uh, Leon was looking to get into management. He flew around the world to meet me. Leon, uh, sorry, Mike Dunlap, and Brian George and McClose. And all I knew was that these guys trusted. So people that I trusted, trusted Leon. Yeah. And so I signed him on the spot and became his first ever about to be NBA player. Mm -hmm. And Leon is such a great story. He, he did absolutely everything. He took all the calls. He kept me away from it. He never promised anything he couldn't deliver and did such a great job. I guess people started talking early days and he started getting bigger and bigger clients because 
the playing fraternity knew that this guy wasn't full of shit. He, he could be trusted. And his first decent name was Eddie Jones. Um, and fast forward, he ended up representing LeBron. He represented massive names in the game to the extent where he took over CAA's entire basketball department. Oh, wow. right, right now, uh, he's a president of the New York Knicks. And he's, in one year, he's helped turn that franchise into a playoff team again. And they'll end up with a free agent. But it just continued over the years to highlight to me, if you're, if you're a quality person, you're genuine and you're good at your job. Again, it takes time, but people recognize that eventually. And Leon is one of the most respected players in, one of the most respected people in basketball. And I just happened to, to find him and have him referred to me day one. And that, on top of all of these great lessons I was learning and people I was surrounding myself with, I found Leon and, and just added another one to the people who influenced me through my career. That must make you feel good, though. Like, you, this guy that you've obviously been recommended and all that stuff ends up becoming this uh, the king of basketball, pretty couldn't, much. Couldn't be, couldn't be happier. And you know what? It's weird to say I'm proud of him because he oh, was in charge of me and I, I look to him. But I also remind him that when my kids are all grown up and I'm looking to go to the States for a couple of years, he might owe me a job. So uh, <laughs> I, I keep reminding him of that there. But, but the joke we always had, and it was before mobile phones and cell phones, if you're from America, but I kept reminding him that, God, mate, I keep sliding down on your speed dial. I'm, I'm you know, LeBron's, <laughs> what number am I now? Um, but he's a great human being. And, you know, him and Brian Gorgian, you know, the Gorgian family, of all the, th of all the experiences we had together, they still thank me for introducing and bringing Leon into everyone's lives because they became best of friends and... Uh, yeah, just a really great story. So then you've got this agent now. He signed you, and he he lets you just get on with your life. And then he gives you a call and says, "Hey, I think we're going to do this." Or how does that call go? No, well, it was a little bit before that. Gordon sort of said that he brought me into a meeting and said, "You're going to have to get an agent because my dad had done my my stuff at home and just contract negotiations." Yeah. Um, but he didn't know America and he said, oh, I'm sick of taking calls. And he said, I'm not doing you any favors because I'm honest when they call me, you need someone to speak on your behalf. And that's when it became real. And that's when Leon came into it. And all I needed to do and all Gorge needed to do was tell anyone to call Leon and he would send them film. He'd talk, he'd talk about what they needed. He'd let me know if anyone was going to be there, but he just told me to, to, to you know, concentrate and focus on playing basketball you know, avoid as many distractions as I could and just keep doing what I was doing. And after the, uh, you know, we, we, we had a USA trip. We went and visited some NBA teams and, you know, the NBA draft was in the middle of a week where ironically was between two games against the Sydney Kings. And that last game was all the folders were there and I'd had a decent game in Sydney. I actually hit game-winning free throws and we celebrated like crazy. We went after the buzzer. But the relief I felt in the locker room that the NBA scouts had all they were going to get now. I didn't have to be evaluated anymore. And now I could just get back to training and see what happened on Thursday. And yeah, the NBA draft for me was very different to back then. Gorgian, we still lifted weights in the morning. The whole team went to the channel. I think it was Channel 7 Studios in South Melbourne. They'd got a live feed because we didn't get it streamed to Australia. We sat in a room at the TV studio with with the team and with a few close friends and my family, and we watched the draft. And all I knew was that if I was available on the, with the last pick in the first round, I was going to the Chicago Bulls, which was insane to even complicate to you know to even contemplate that. But it was a surprise that Portland picked me because I hadn't spoken a word to them. But as you mentioned in the intro, I got it was a pre-draft agreement with the Dallas Mavericks that the Mavericks were the team that wanted me. They'd, they'd traded for me. Um, Did you know that? I'm sorry? Did you know that? I had no idea. I had no idea who was going to draft me outside the Bulls would if I was available. And so I was going to Dallas. I, I had a Portland Trailblazers cap on for a couple of minutes. I hugged everyone. Leon <laughs> called. He said, you're sitting down. You're actually going to Dallas. So I changed hats. Um <laughs> We celebrated. I did a little bit of press. Um, you know, Don Nelson called. Leon, of course, called again. Uh, we're out of there about an hour later and we went to training. And 
it was the most fun, surreal training that, you know, oh, we've got an NBA guy on the team. It was, <laughs> but in the right spirit, it was yeah, great of course. fun. And you know what, the, the game against Sydney that weekend, I played with this freedom I hadn't had in, in months because I knew no one was watching anymore. And I had one of my best games, I had 30 points and a dozen odd rebounds. And I made a spin move on the dribble that I'd never done. And <laughs> I could just relax again. And, yeah. you know, it, it was it was a really, really fun, you know, couple of weeks. And then, yeah, that led into nearly winning a championship. It had already been, yeah, it led into an under 23 world championships and, and becoming world champions. So it was a fun year. So playing for Australia. And you get to put on the green and gold. And you did that, I think, what, you said under 23s. Was that the first time you did it? Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. And then you win a world champs. Like, Australia's always been that basketball nation that sort of usually sits fifth or sixth or fourth or around that. We've never sort of been medal-bound uh, as such. Obviously, that's changing now. But to actually win a world champs, where does that sit on the uh, of everything you've done? Really high. And I think... You always want to do something that no one's ever done before. That that was always something for me. And no men's senior or junior team had ever won a gold medal. The the under 19s had won a silver and came so close a few years before. And they made up the core of this team. And I was a year older, so I was able to fit into this one. And um, you know, you could just tell that they believed that they were close, but we only just made the quarterfinals. You know, we needed to win our last pool game just to get in, which we did, and we'd shuffled the roster. We won that game, but we crossed over against the USA in the quarterfinals, which was a horrendous draw. And the first half of that game was one of the best games of basketball I've ever been a part of because it was still the USA. Yeah. And we're up 20-odd points <clears> at <throat> halftime, and the story I, I do like telling is that Simon Dwight had been benched the game before, hadn't played a minute and could have gone into the tank and sulked at the end of the bench. But, you know, Stax called his number after having not played a minute because he liked his length and he thought he could change the game up. And Dwighty was incredible in, in that game. So to an extent where he started the second half and got us going again in the second half, and we never looked like losing. Um, and the, that win instilled an even greater belief that we could then go and beat Argentina, who we beat on the buzzer, you know, Manu Ginobili, many people will know he was one of the main guys on that group. And that shot that Aaron Treher hit in the corner where we all went and jumped on him has become <laughs> one of the most iconic shots in Australian men's basketball. Yeah, with, you know, that with the Tony Ronaldson four-point play to beat Croatia. But that was incredible. And, you know, the gold medal was unbelievable. I got into foul trouble and sat a lot of it, but beating Puerto Rico in that gold medal game and doing it on home turf. You never know how much that helps, but celebrating with a wider basketball fraternity was incredible. Um, you know, we're all very proud, very privileged to be a part of it, but at some level, we also felt like we deserved it. Yeah. And the thing with with tournaments like that, no one can ever take them away from us. So it's uh, it's still something we hold on to dearly. And world champs compared to Olympics. It's, it's tough. Um, the Olympic Games and, and any any of your biggest moments in life can set you up for the best moments in your life, but on, it doesn't take much to make them one of the worst or the most disappointing or deflating moments of your life either. Mm -hmm. and, and that was Sydney Olympics for us. We, we made the top four. We'd been to the ceremony. We'd played in front of our home fans. We'd played some, we'd lost our first game and put us behind the eight ball, but we found our way into the semifinals. And of course, when you get to a semifinals of an Olympic Games, only one team does a medal and that was us. So to come so close but miss out was was brutal. We, we've always, to this day, every, every boomer wants to be a part of the first men's Australian team, senior men's team to win a medal at an Olympic Games or a mm -hmm. world championship. We got crucified in Rio with that call on Paddy Mills We'd been so close. So as much as it was a highlight, it was also one of the lowlights. Yeah. Um, but, but I think I'm a little bit different where I never, and this, I hope this sounds right, but I never feel like I'm representing my country first. I feel like I'm representing myself in, a, in some sort of a selfish way and trying to demonstrate it, the best version of me. But 
my family, my teammates, and all the people who've helped me be a part of this. And as a parent, I understand this better because I've got a daughter who's represented Australia as well as a junior. Yes, you, you understand how many people ride every single second of your tournament with you. And so I feel like I'm representing the people who I've spent my life with and I know who are watching every second, even a little bit more than I'm representing the millions of other basketball fans who I've never met but want to demonstrate how, how much it means to me. And so they sit just a little bit behind those really close to me, but understanding that you've been selected as someone who does represent your country, it's, it's a great honour. Um, it's something that, again, they don't take away from us when we yep. retire. And I wish I had been a part and could have done a little bit better to bring a medal uh, to an Olympic Games. But you know, I'm their biggest supporter now every time they sit foot on the floor like they're about to in Tokyo. So you mentioned there about your daughter, and uh, we'll go into your family in a sec, but to watch your child play for Australia, do you think that means more to you than you actually playing for Australia? Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it does. Um, because there's a sense of pride, a genuine sense of pride with how well that, how well she's done and understanding what she's been through. Um, you know, Izzy's a type 1 diabetic who's been on insulin since she was in year seven and continues to battle with what she eats and blood tests every day and insulin injections every day. And she has her moments where it's really difficult. Um, you know, she's not the best self-starter, Izzy, and she needs to be around people who drive her. Mm -hmm. um, but she's had some incredible moments in basketball, but, you know, she's just taken off. You know, she made the under, she actually got injured just before the first team she ever made. And, it was a one time I've never seen her so down, you know, to make the team for the first time and then pick up an injury a week before the tournament that, that made her miss it. But she, she got back and there's a great story I like telling about Dirk Nowitzki who reached out in that time and really changed her mood altogether. Um, but now look, Izzy's just recently well, gone across to UCLA and she's only been there a week or so, but COVID set her back a year with that. She couldn't get yep. into the country. And for me as a parent, I, I just wanted to experience life, to meet new people, to, to get to work on her education. She doesn't need to hear my voice as a coach anymore. She doesn't need to hear my voice every day. She's got to make her own choices and make her own mistakes. And, you know, I'll be there to catch her, but, you know, she needs to fall a few times. And I think that was basketball for her. And so, you know, going to, to Bangkok, watching from afar as she played over in Europe on her first one, it's just an incredible journey. Um, you know, she, I'll never forget, she, they're in the gold medal game, they won a silver in Bangkok, and Izzy was incredible against some of the best players in the world, but picked up an offensive foul in the dying seconds that they called unsportsmanlike. The USA went and shot two, uh, went and shot the free throws and then hit a game winner, and she was crushed. Um, as the team was um, after this incredible game. And, you know, part of being a parent is in that moment, you want to say the right thing. Yeah. And never forget hugging her. And all I could say was, I hope you now believe you're one of the best players in the world. It's as simple as that. I didn't say anything about the game, but, you know, that was the message for her. And, you know, she's been great for the most part since she was tough in COVID, but I can't wait to see what she becomes as a person um, and as a player, just being around a, an elite, I suppose, elite program of people who want to get better on and mm. off the court. I, it just excites me to see what she's going to become. So you've witnessed and you've been part of the machine that is the NBA and the good stuff, the bad stuff. Um, you got traded from the Mavericks to the Bulls. And so you've seen the, the, uh, the business side of it and the politics side of it. If she does make the women's NBA, is there stuff you can share with her or to help her through that process to actually realise that this is a business, it's not just a sport? Yeah, it's, it's always surrounding yourself with the right people. And you do have to look out for yourself, but you have to do it in the right context. You know, whether or not Izzy goes to the, the WNBA or not, 
to me is largely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she, she, her personality, I, I feel like she may end up in Europe if she pursues it and perhaps even China. She actually speaks decent Mandarin um, <laughs> and she, and she's one of the people who loves China as a country. So, you know, we sat there one day, I said, can you imagine you being a six foot three blonde athlete who turns up and plays in China and does a press conference in Mandarin, you, you'd open your world even further. Oh, 100%. Um, so that's, I think that's been put away somewhere in the back of her mind as, as something that she'd love to do one day. Um, but she's a little bit like me where she may be able to take or leave basketball at some stage because she does have a lot of other, other interests. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as a female elite athlete, you have to because you're not going to set yourself up for life in this generation. You need to have other interests and, and use your platform, you know, in a positive way to influence others, but also to generate a secondary income stream if you can. Um, and so I'll always make sure she tries to do that as well. So it'd be remiss of me because this is all about you is to go back to wife, kids, all that sort of stuff. When did that all happen? Uh, yeah, it's you know you, you make some good decisions in life, you make some bad ones, and it's yep. you know probably one of yeah marriage didn't work for me. Um, mm -hmm. For and I won't get into all of the no, different of reasons not. because there always are, but you know I, I guess you learn over the years that as much as you think it's not as much your fault, it clearly is. Um, you understand how things you say and things you do can be taken different ways, and you don't notice them as much when you're younger. So. Yeah, I always said I'd never get married again after my first divorce. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was the toughest time in my life was going through a divorce and having things said about me that weren't true yeah. um, in an attempt to get custody of the kids. And then losing more money than mm -hmm. I got to keep through my entire, it was hard and you become bitter. Um, but you also realise it's normal uh, or it's a little bit more uh there are a lot more other people go through the same thing and you find a network of people you can speak to but that was what i struggled with most in my basketball career when I, in my time at the tigers i didn't want to play I, I just wanted to see my kids um i was sleeping in my car because i was too proud to ask someone for a room um for for a period of time and there's a there's a chapter about it in the book that i'm not but i won't go into it now but um yeah but, but then it occurred to me when i started dating again that you know, my, my second wife had never been married. We, we didn't plan on having kids. But I thought after years that it was going to, I didn't want to be selfish. And, you know, I know most young girls dream of a wedding day and I didn't want to be the person that say you couldn't have that. So we got married and it didn't work out. Um, and, you know, I've got a, a six-year-old son who's an incredible human being you talk yeah. about awesome people in a podcast he's a little superstar and i love hanging out with him and he's me and he's with me more than he's not um izzy and ethan both love him um we've got this incredible blended family and i love being a dad i love being a single dad i love taking him to work i love taking him to basketball um i learn a lot through marriage about myself or a lot through relationships about myself it's you know something i'm not going to do again um but, you know, here I am. You know, I didn't expect to be here. I didn't, you know, I grew up traditionally like you get married, you have kids, you live happily ever after. And I suppose when you talk about success and fail failure, you know, not making your marriage work when you come from a family where your parents did and grandparents who did it, you feel like you failed a little bit. But um, no, look, I love my kids to death. You know, I'm not bitter about either divorce um, I understand reasons better now than yeah. I did then. And um, maybe it wasn't meant to be. Maybe it was a bad choice. Maybe it was a good choice I needed to make that didn't work out. I don't know, but I can't change it. So, uh, yeah, right now I couldn't be happier. Mate, they're life lessons that we've got to live. And they're good, they're bad, they're ugly. But at the same time, it's, you've got three amazing little humans that uh, are now part of what you're brought into this world. And you get to assist them live their lives and become better. And that's all you can really do as a parent, isn't it? That's it. Um, and, you know, so it's almost like a common thread, isn't it? Part of being a parent, I think, is not just the messages you give them, but the people you, at some level, surround them with. 
you know, from, from coaches to your own mates to the messages and the things they see because you learn pretty quickly about kids. They, they learn when you don't know they're learning. It's not what you sit down and tell them. Oftentimes is what they sit back and observe. So there's a lot in that, but yeah, they, they're great. It's very deep too, and I love that. Hey, well, I got introduced to you through a mate of mine on Facebook, actually. He was telling me, you've got to read this story. And the story was about you in Russia uh, having surgery. And <laughs> it's still to this day one of the best stories I've read. And I actually said to him at the time, I really hope he brings a book out. And now look at you, you're an author. It became my COVID project. I, it was interesting. I first started on a book a lot of years ago and I, I just realised I was writing about me and I didn't like it. I don't, I don't really like speaking about myself, but I, mm -hmm. I do enjoy speaking about what I've learnt, especially from some incredible human beings that I think might be relevant and can help others. And that's what this book became. Um, and it's the reason I got into coaching that I'd had some incredible coaches over the years and I realised that there are a lot of young athletes out there that aren't going to have access to the lessons that I learned. I wanted to share them with as many people as I could because I knew the positive impact that had on me and that allowed me to be the best version of me. And yeah, that's what I think all we need when we coach is to, to explore and understand the best, best version of ourselves. And so that's why I got into coaching and that's why I wrote the book because I think there are so many lessons that I learned in sport, again, from incredible people that are relevant to you, whether you're a sports person, a parent, a student. Um, I, I just really love some of the things I've learned and I love the people who taught them to me. So, you know, you referenced the one in Russia. There, there, weren't so, there wasn't so much a lesson in that one outside of make sure your health policy is up to date. <laughs> for what we've got here in Australia, but, you know, read the book, but that was the most scared I've ever been, lying yeah. on the table knowing I had no control over a situation and honestly thought I was going to die. Um, you know, and especially when the surgeon, after everything that led up to the moment of being butt naked in a minus 45 degree hospital in a room of 40 people to clean shaven and wheeled down the corridor, still butt naked, um, into a, an operating theater that had a light that was pretty much a dolphin torch hanging from the roof and that the green plastic bins we've all seen with the black clip on lids full of bloody bandages. I just thought I was going to die. And the sound that still scares me or doesn't scare me, but it haunts me to this day is if you go to a cutlery drawer and you rattle it yeah. and you hear the cutlery <laughs> move around, I heard that. And as I was stinging from the antiseptic and I was strapped down on this table in a crucifix type deal, I heard that sound. And so I opened my eyes to see what was going on because I'd put in... Uh, the the antiseptic, not the antiseptic, the uh, the anaesthetist had put in the drugs to knock me out, and I opened my eyes, and the surgeon was about to start. He had the scalpel over my appendix, ready to cut it out, and I was still awake, and I just started screaming, oh, and Jesus. I just saw these two big eyes through the mask and the hat that he had on. He was he thought I was asleep, and he started yelling at the anaesthetist, who then went and put uh, an IV into my other arm. I tell you what, I've never stayed awake harder than I had in those next moments. And I eventually fell asleep, of course, and woke up in a, it turned out a, a private room in this hospital, which was a, a crappy room with an old blanket. And there's a photo in the book, but it was the best they had. And I ended up being there for over a week because they don't have antibiotic tablets in Russia at that stage. or didn't have, they only had injections. So I needed to be there to get injected every day. And it's it's not the it's not the keyhole surgery over there that we have now to get your appendix out. There's a big scar and it looked like one of those, you know, the, the rolled roasts you get where they tie it up. It looked like that. And I just, the minute I got out of hospital, I, I flew across across to Dallas. I had a I thought if I go home to a doctor, yeah, I'm not coming back. <laughs> so I flew to Dallas for a couple of days. They said, look, it's old school. They did a pretty good job. You're okay to play in a couple of weeks, which I did. And um, crazy, crazy experience in Russia. <laughs> One, I'm very grateful I survived. <laughs> oh, but the great stories. I really look forward to actually reading the book. So I will, I will be getting a copy in the next couple of weeks. I hope. The other, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, you've played against some really good basketball players. Who's the best Australian basketball you've ever played against? There, I, you know, it's funny. I, my my cop out answer. And I don't think it's a cop out. Is that, 
It's hard to compare areas. It's hard to compare positions. It's hard to compare roles. Um, I think... Oh, you, you only get to say one. You've got to pick one. I know, and I say this, I never played against Ben Simmons. I think he's on his way to becoming that. And I think we get caught up in what he can't do and don't spend enough time yep. on what he can do, especially now. Mm -hmm. um, but Luke Longley and Andrew Bogut, what they're able to do on a global scale, um, I think Luke is grossly underappreciated and underrated for the yep. role he played on that Chicago Bulls team. And he played that role perfectly. Um, and was selfless in doing so. And he'll tell you that that was as good as he could be. But yeah, in his prime, he could have had a bigger role in another team. Um, Andrew Bogut becoming the number one draft pick and at times one of the best players on an NBA franchise and then going and sacrificing for the Golden State Warriors and being the first of you to win an NBA championship, having a genuine role in it. I know Andrew Gaze had one but didn't play in it. Yeah. Um, but Bogut was a genuine NBA championship winner. Yeah, he did something for the first time. And I, I think those two guys really allowed other young Aussie athletes to understand that it's doable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Joe Ingalls, what he's been able to do and what he's been able to transform himself into as an NBA player is incredible as is Paddy Mills. Um, for, for Matthew Delavid Dover, I think if there's anyone that's explored absolutely maximizing their potential, it's Matthew Delavid Dover. Yeah. Um, he made himself into an NBA player when he wasn't the most talented guy and certainly not the most athletic guy. And I, I don't think he'd mind me saying that because my respect for him from afar without knowing him uh, is off the charts by, for what he was able to do in the NBA and for this country by, by representing the Boomers. Um, I, I think they have to be there. Lo locally, you have to say guys like Andrew Gaze, who yeah. domestically is our greatest scorer and most decorated player of all time and really put bums on seats. I was able to, at times, single-handedly grow the game of basketball here in Australia. Mm -hmm. Um all-time Olympic scorer and yeah, him and Shane Hill put the national team on their back offensively for years and, you know, played fearlessly against anyone in the world. So there, there are so many, I, I, I wouldn't like to name one, um, but there's a bunch for you to... Not a bad team if you put them all on the court together, would it? It'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> so when, the one thing I've never even thought of, did you play against Bogut in the US? Uh, he no, I didn't. He got there in. To, oh, when did he get there? Twenty oh one, twenty maybe early two thousands. Oh, okay. Uh, so I missed him. Um, what about it Luke? Was funny. We we butted heads. You know, it wasn't social media, but in the public, and we were both pretty strong minded. And you know, we've enjoyed a beer since then, and we've actually done a podcast together. But you know, he's someone who is very strong willed and never played. Uh, never played against him, but played with him um, yeah. at the Beijing Olympics. And my respect for what he was able to do and in guarding him in that was it was always high. But, you know, seeing that firsthand as well, he was growing into his career. I was almost, I was on my way out. But, um, you know, Australian basketball was always in good hands if Andrew Bogut was a piece of it. 100%. Do you ever think it'll get back to uh, where it was in the 90s from a crowd point of view and uh, all that sort of stuff in Australia? I think COVID's the biggest factor in that now. I think it was getting there. And I think if you looked across, it's interesting. We always reference the crowds, but, you know, even in those days that I played in, the, the Magic and the Tigers, we'd sell out Rod Laver and have 15,000. But, you know, Canberra would come to town and you'd have 3,500. Yeah. Or, there'd be a, a Canberra versus Newcastle game that had 1,500. So it was pretty skewed towards Melbourne rivalries when we talk about the crowds, mm -hmm. um, which was great to be a part of. But I think across the board and across the nation pre-COVID, we saw an increase in crowds across the league. Perth's done it for years, but as Victoria, with Victorian bias, we, we don't recognise that. But I think they've got what we had in years melbourne's getting back there um you know all the other teams around the league are close on selling out more often than they're not against all teams not just one or two in the league so i think we were nearly there pre-covid and i think the answer to that is covid dependent
It's interesting. Um, late last year, I got back into NBA trading cards because there was a lot of money to be made okay. and, uh, and that sort of stuff. And today I looked up uh, Chris Anstey uh, NBA trading card and there's an autograph card online of Chris Anstey for $49. So you're I still up you there, mate. Say, I thought you were going to say 49 cents. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a few dollar $1.34, but there's one still there at $49, bucks, mate. So people still think hey, very well, highly you, of you in that I'll world. tell you what, you can put any price on it you want. Somebody's got to buy it. I bet it's still there in weeks. <laughs> Uh, mate, thanks so much for talking to me. One of the things I love to end my podcast with is some quick fire questions. You ready? Okay. What's your greatest achievement in life? Being a pretty good dad. Who's the person or people who have had the biggest influence on you on your career? Brian Gorgian, uh, Al Westover, Des Middleton, as discussed. Or the person or people who have the most influence on you personally? Mum and dad, and Mom then there's so many people um, that I wouldn't like to put it in on that. It, but I, I think it's the same. I, you know what? I, I, probably Brian Gorgian, because I think a lot of the lessons he taught me correlated with life as much as they did basketball. Favorite food? Steak. Every day of the week. <laughs> Favorite song? Don't have one. You know what? I love country music. I know that sounds like a weird thing, and I. I was almost a closet country fan for a while, having spent time in Dallas. Come into my house, you'll hear country music. Anytime there's a country gig in Melbourne, I'm there. Favourite place in the world? You're asking the wrong question. It's who I go with. Um, I give me mates, I'll go to the worst place in the world as opposed to going to the best. But Dallas is my home away from home. I want to explore. I want to see places for the first time. I... You know what, my, actually, my favourite place may be New York City only because the look on my son's face because it's his by a mile when he gets there is priceless. And the fact that you may be an assistant coach there in the future. <laughs> What's yeah. next for Chris Anstey? Uh, I'll keep promoting this book. I'll keep coaching. Uh, I'm into events. So we're running basketball events here in Melbourne. COVID hurt us a little bit, but we sold out our first one. We'd sold out our second one, but COVID hit and we had to cancel. So... We want to build standalone events that are going to... There are a lot of stories to be told in basketball from some incredible people. It's a bit of a theme, isn't it? And um, if COVID opens up, we've got some incredible people coming in from the United States next year that we're going to put in front of over, over a 1,000 people. And you might be able to guess who they're going to be, but they're coming to town as soon as we don't have to quarantine for two weeks. Uh, we're going to put on basketball events uh, we're going to continue to grow the sport and the stories behind it. Mate, I love that. And the fact if you ever want to come and do them on the Gold Coast, we're more than happy to, uh, to we, back we, you and we get involved. Be, we will be looking at, you know what, we'll be doing flipping it as well. So as soon as we can travel, we'll be putting groups of people on an aeroplane to come and meet some of these people and sit in the programs. And, you know, there's a lot to be learned. Mate, I love your work. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're an awesome human. Thanks so much for your time today. I look forward to getting the book. And I'm going to uh, put a bid in on that basketball singlet that you've got up for grabs for that six day. Uh, no, you're good, man. Andrew, as well. Andrew, Andrew Parkinson is a, a great mate of the Southeast Melbourne, of, of myself, but a Southeast Melbourne Magic teammate who's doing it really, really hard with a lot of bouts of cancer and a lot of surgery. So we're doing all we can to support him. But uh, jump on my Facebook. If, if you want to grab a book, it's at chrisanstey.com.au. It's very old school. I'm not doing it through bookshops and all that sort of thing. It's just a website. But uh, no, look, it's an awesome podcast. Thank you for having me on. And uh, appreciate the chat. It's enjoyable. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate you, mate. Anytime. Cheers. See you soon. What an amazing human. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the Podfire podcast and I really hope that you enjoyed Awesome Humans. Reach out to us on Podfire and all the social media channels as well as BJ Macker uh, to reach out to me personally. Have a great day.